Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Coinciding with the 75th anniversary of the end of the Pacific War, Apocalypse 45 combines pristine raw color film footage of the last months of World War II in the Pacific with the voices of over two dozen men who lived through the nightmarish events using this astonishing restored footage interwoven with the narration of these men who fought and died. Apocalypse 45 spotlights the sacrifices of the greatest generation as Americans and the world grapples with the meaning and consequences of World War II. And with that, we're joined today by the director of Apocalypse 45, and that would be Eric Nelson. Eric, welcome to Film School Radio. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I know you've done other films uh, that had um, World War II as a subject matter, but what prompted or what inspired Apocalypse 45? Well, I would say the impending 75th anniversary of the end of the war, which is essentially now, August, September of uh, 1945 is 75 years ago now. That coupled with the fact that I was aware of the color footage, I've been long aware that they filmed in the Pacific, not as much in the European theater of operations, but in the Pacific, especially the last two years, they filmed extensively uh, the combat. So I knew that there was a treasure trove of footage sitting at the National Archives, if not discovered, properly appreciated, and certainly not properly restored. I've seen, we've, I think we've all seen footage, World War II footage, and it tends to be the same couple of minutes, right? Planes crashing, a few, you know, sort of things that we've, I've been seeing on television for years. What was the, it was a lot of this material that's in Apocalypse 45 was in the National Archives, is, is that yes. correct? Hmm? Uh, all of the footage was sitting in the National Archives, actually. And was we, there a consideration or reason why it hadn't been restored or it hadn't been seen? Was there? I'll leave that to whoever else is making historical documentaries to answer that. To me, uh, it, the technology didn't exist to do what we've done to it. Uh, we're able to move it to transfer from direct the film, the actual physical film, in some cases, one or two generations off of the original camera load and put it to 4K. A 4K is a you know digital buzzword, but what that means is there's no loss in quality if you take it from the three by four ratio, the classic Hollywood old movie film ratio, and move it to widescreen. You don't lose any, I repeat, any of its uh, quality. Plus we have a, 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 some programs that allow us to remove dust and scratches from the film. So we painstakingly restored the footage and brought it to widescreen. So that's why the footage looks as good as it does. And then where the creative comes in is as a director, I'm not looking for a lot of the traditional images. I'm looking for more Cotodian details, guys with sitting with dogs on the deck of aircraft carriers and things that you don't necessarily notice that aren't what they call the money shots. Though Lord knows there's a lot of money shots in Apocalypse 45. There's also a lot of things that are very cinematic. These combat photographers were making a movie and they were very careful about what they were filming. And at the end of the film, the footage in Hiroshima uh, was shot by 
a gentleman by the name of Harry Mamura, who was during the war, worked with Kurosawa in Japan and was a professional Hollywood trained by Greg Toland, ironically, cinematographer. Really? And he was drafted to uh, film. Once the Americans came in as a Japanese citizen, he volunteered or was in, uh, drafted to film in his hometown of Hiroshima. So when we were putting the film together, I noticed that a lot of the footage just looked, uh, was really well shot. There were tracking shots and dolly shots. And I put the footage in and cut it the way that I felt the whoever the unknown cinematographer was. And then I noticed the name Mamura appearing on the slates. And it was only after the completion of the film that I discovered the Greg Toland Kurosawa connection. Wow, that's an amazing story. There's also some footage in uh, Apocalypse 45 from what has been referred to as uh, John Ford's lost film. Is that Tell us a little bit about the story behind that. Well, this is where Greg Toland comes in again. Uh, John Ford, uh, who was the zealot of the early Pacific War, he was on the deck of the Hornet when the Doolittle Raid flew off in April. He came back to Pearl Harbor. He was marking time to be sent to Midway for that climactic battle. But while he was there, he did second unit work for his buddy, Greg Toland, who was being charged with directing a film called December 7th. So Ford directed all of these sequences and the footage went back to Toland, who converted them back to black and white, did a 90 minute film called December 7th. It was so horrifically racist that even during the war in 1943, it was censored. And Ford picked up the pieces and converted it to a half hour film, which won an Academy Award, something that I don't think endeared him to wannabe director Greg Toland. So the idea that Harry Mamura was trained by Greg Toland in Hollywood in the early 30s and then connects the dots. This is something that I'm planning on doing for a new film, by the way. So it's, oh, it's on my mind now. But, but <laughs> well, the, the Ford footage is, a, is the only real, what I would call, A-plus discovery because no one knew. It wasn't labeled as lost John Ford feature film in the archives. It was labeled as... B-roll Pearl Harbor, April 1942, if it was even, and I, the moment I saw the first slate with Ford on it, I, I hit the books and uncovered where it came from in the Providence. And I just for our, um, even though I have a very educated and sophisticated audience, I'm going to just remind people that Greg Tolan was one of the preeminent cinematographers and it was the, the man behind the deep focus on, on Citizen Kane working with the uh, And Best Will. Years of Our Lives, uh, William Wyler, yeah. who uh, did his B-17 love letter. And I did the cold blue and restored his Memphis Bell a couple of years ago. So okay. there's a connection here. So yeah. as a filmmaker myself, I love to be following and uh, stumbling, I would say there'd be a better phrase, stumbling in the footsteps of John Ford, William Wyler, and Greg Toland. That is a great story. Uh, the film Apocalypse 45 follows um, and really kind of spot, shines a spotlight on the big events of the Pacific War, in my estimation. You may want to add to that. But Pearl Harbor, I want to see Iwo Jima, Okinawa, the dropping of the firebombing of Tokyo, and then the dropping of the two atomic bombs, one hot atomic and one nitrogen bomb. Hydrogen bomb, pardon me. Hydrogen on, and plutonium. Plutonium, thank you. Thank you. Um, the dropping of those weapons on um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. 
you're right. The footage is, I've never seen footage of World War II this pristine. So it really brings things home to, to, to the viewer. But what really adds so much to the film is the, the men that you interview throughout the film. We, we, they're sort of voiceover there in a manner of speaking narration of what happened. Um, what was that like to try and get in touch and then uh, talk them into talking about what had to be a very traumatic experience for them in their, in their younger days? Uh, both were, were tricky. Uh, the producer, one of the producers, there were two producers of the film, Peter Hankoff, who was the curator, if you will, of the veterans who reached out and made the arraignments and tracked the guys down. And Elizabeth Harchins, who was our working deep within the, you've seen the La Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, remember the last scene, that's the National Archives metaphorically. So she was down there looking for the film. So Peter reached out through various organizations uh, to contact them. And then he, Peter and I, the two of us, took four road trips as COVID was beginning to descend over the nation starting in uh, October, January, February, uh, ending at the end of February to reach the guys and you have to go where they are. So we interviewed 24 men total, uh, one of them a Japanese American survivor of Hiroshima and the other 23 veterans. And as far as getting them to talk about this, yeah, they're in their 90s. One guy is 101 years old. So you have to be very mindful of their stamina, make sure you're on the side of their good ear. We didn't film the interviews. And because it was only two of us and we were very, very low tech, uh, it, it didn't intimidate them. And then I was aware of the footage and well aware of the history. So I knew what questions to ask them. And a lot of the questions weren't, what did you do? Tell me all the details. It was, you know, what was it like doing it? What did you see? What do you remember? Uh, and it, they opened up without exception and kind of one guy who was a medic, a corpsman, had never told any of these stories before. And he uh, starts crying. He's one of the gentlemen who cries in the film. Yeah. And he's, by the way, a corpsman who uh, was first on the scene when Ernie Pyle, the famed war correspondent, was killed. He literally cradled the dying Ernie Pyle in his arms. Something we didn't know when we went to meet him. There are some amazing stories in the film about their experiences, but their narration, sort of their, their um, impressions of the time are also invaluable to the film in, in terms of what they were thinking, what they felt that the country was thinking. There's a, there's a number of um, gentlemen in the film who have, um, you know, they're living history, basically. And Absolutely. So, they're, yeah. they're, a time, they're a living time portal in much the same way as the footage, by its vividness and restoration, is unvarnished and connects you directly to the past with no Hollywood fabrications. Right. The voices of these guys are a direct conduit. So there's no artifice here. There's nothing between the viewer, hopefully, and the events. So it's... it's and we consciously create a time portal. The film opens where we slowly come from black and white. The portal opens and authors, directors touch, the portal closes at the end. Yes. So that's a very intentional idea that we're sort of taking you on a, a time travel ride now. We're going to go back in time and we're going to take you through what this was like without any interference from 
narrators or talking heads or digital effects or maps or anything that kind of pulls you away from the, the integrity of the material. Now, you mentioned just a few minutes ago that um, you were interviewing up until February of this year. So that production timeline from the last of the interviews to its release here in August must have been fairly intense. Very intense, yeah. The uh, National Art, we got our last footage out of the National Archives the second week in March. One week later, they shut their doors and they still have not reopened. Wow. Uh, but we had gotten the interviews uh, and I have a very uh, handcrafted way of making films, so there was no issue. I've been, I've been working from my home office for 15 years now and socially distancing for about 50, so there was no real problem uh, getting this done so we kind of obviously editorially taking 24 interviews and making the thing that was a challenge as it always is but it was fairly straightforward you know it really was just getting out of the way of the material and letting the guys making the guys look good yeah. and making refining what they had to say and making them sort of be this Greek chorus, if you will. So it's just basically get rid of everything that doesn't make a compelling film and you're done. So I don't have the credits in front of me and I apologize, but you directed, produced, and did you also edit? Then it sounds like you were the editor as well. No, I was not the editor. The editor was a gentleman named Paul Marengo, who okay. Paul edited The Cold Blue and we've worked together for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, Paul was the editor. I was the director, the writer, if you will, even though there's almost no, if you look at the quote narration, it's a page and a half, double, triple spaced. There's very... Someone once said about my films, you use more title cards than D.W. Griffith. So <laughs> I'm happy to take that. Because again, uh, uh, you need to have some, some grounding in what's happening, but less is more. So I call it haiku history. Very, very spare black and white cards that ground you and you move on. In making this film and in, in, uh, the footage that we see in Apocalypse 45, is there anything that jumped out at you that was sort of an unexpected aspect of seeing this footage? Did it, did it reach you on a more emotional level than you expected? Were there things in the footage that itself that surprised you? Is there, what would sort of, as you're watching something that has not probably been seen ever um, in a public well, viewing? Uh, well, so. we've discussed the, the Mamura, the Harry Mamura Hiroshima footage and the John Ford Pearl Harbor footage. So that was quite a discovery and discovering Harry Mamura and that connection with Toland and the fact that I spotted that there was a cinematographer in the house. You know, this was being shot much better than it needed to be shot. Uh, and then to have that, that discovery uh, amp, uh, verified when I found out who actually was shooting it. It isn't like the name isn't on the slate. So that was, that was definitely something. And the footage, it's the footage that we didn't show of the uh, suicides at Saipan. We used, it's a very harrowing sequence in the film where they film Japanese civilians uh, on the island of Saipan and the Marianas leaping to their death rather than be captured. So it's, and as horrific as that sequence is, you should see the stuff we didn't use because they, it's, it's absolutely stunning. And it's stunning that the combat photographers were even filming it. I don't know what they were thinking by filming it. 
And all this footage is just laying in the National Archives. So we had to be very careful. As intense as the film is, and I like to say this is, you know, if you were saying what's the elevator pitch for this, it's the first 20 minutes of Save It Private Ryan meets Apollo 11. You know, it's, it, so it has the kind of the narrative grace of Apollo 11 with the intensity and vividness of the first 20 minutes of Save It Private Ryan. Right. So that's that. Um, but I don't know where I'm going with this. But well, no, well, I'm just talking about in sort of a visceral way, watching this footage. Here we are 75 years later. Is there anything that sort of emotionally or, or in some other way that you what surprised you about watching this footage again? Well, I think watching the footage of VJ Day, watching the, the Americans on the street, just completely uh, hysterical with glee. If you've, I'm a fan of the underrated uh, Scorsese film, New York, New York, which opens up at VJ Day in New York. If anything, Scorsese undersold how uh, uh, crazy it was. But to see this sort of promise and exuberance and this we can do anything, look what we've just done uh, of America and contrast it to today where we can't even keep the post office uh, delivering on time. Uh, and then to be talking to the guys who were there then and are there today yeah. and sort of sense the American empire, if you will, which I think started when MacArthur uh, got the surrender on the deck of the Missouri in September of 45 and ended September of 2001 when the first plane hit the World Trade Center. That's the American empire. You can pretty much bracket it in that period of time. So this film looks at that American empire. And if there's any people read anything into it or wonder what was the director thinking or what was his intentions, if it leaves you troubled and wondering and wondering what's happened to America and kind of rethinking World War II in a new light, then I think I've done my job. Yeah. One last question about that. Um, and that is the, as I alluded to earlier, the, we see footage of the, uh, effects of the two bombs being dropped first on Hiroshima and then on Nagasaki. And you allude to it. I thought I was quite happy to see that she sort of framed th that part of the film with those questions of, you know, the debate was, you know, should we have done that? What did, what was the, the, the net effect of uh, dropping those bombs that saved American lives and that those, that sort of open debate. Um, did that, is that something that you feel like bears a continued discussion or do you think it's settled history or? Well, on one hand, it is settled history. It happened the way it did. And hindsight is it certainly makes history and decisions easier in hindsight. So there's no going back as the Itse Nakagawa says, who's 15 years old at Hiroshima said what Frank Oppenheimer, the brother of Robert Oppenheimer, who built the bomb, the genie is out of the bottle. And when Curtis LeMay, who without compunction uh, killed 100,000 Japanese in one night in Tokyo, six months before the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, when even LeMay says we shouldn't have done it because uh, it set a uh, precedent. But on the other hand, I, far greater minds and historians than me have debated this. But my question is, had the bombs not been dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how would we have ever known its real impact on humans? So created something that was so repellent and repugnant and such a taboo that knocking on all available wooden objects, it hasn't happened since. I'm certainly not gonna open up the 
the hindsight and well, would they have done this? And if we'd known this and we'd known that, you know. It's a good point. Would, would, would the fact that it had never been detonated to this day, would, what would, it, you know, could we have resisted, not just us, but the others who have, have the bomb? Yeah. You know, that's a, so, an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And, and again, it's an interesting debate, but I think I've always tended to frame it as the great Paul Fusel, a great writer who served in the uh, European theater of the war, his books entitled, thank God for the atomic bomb. And when you talk to the vets who were there in their nineties, who knew they were pretty right. much had a death sentence, they weren't going to come out of this. They have a very different perspective than me as an armchair historian filmmaker 75 years later just to interject my my personal perspective on it which the argument that or what you just said um i feel has a lot of weight to it it's just the second one that's the one i have a problem with well again they they this is a military machine that was daily obliterating city after city whether you're killed from radiation or killed from uh, firebombing, you're equally dead. Yeah. They had the bombs, they had the second one, and they were getting a third one together. And once the decision was made to drop it, it was considered ordinance like anything else. They were going to keep right. doing it until the war ended. Right. So there was no but, thought but, once, the, once the thing went. In hindsight, there was certainly pressure, even internal pressure, should we do this or shouldn't we do it? But did we give Japan enough time to, to really understand what had happened, do you think? Well, we had given Japan the following six months to surrender, yeah. and it didn't yeah. seem, they didn't seem to get the message. It's, I mean, again, I mean, it's just, I, I find this endlessly fascinating. Yeah, that's it. It's an endless debate, and it'll yeah. never be ended. Yeah. And I can play devil's, I can argue any side of this debate. I can yeah. argue the, a blockade would have worked, the war would have ended anyway, the peace, uh, they, they, there were peace factions working on the emperor, if it kept conventional war things, you know, one can argue all the different right. scenarios and well, I can argue any side of it. The side I argue is it happened. Yeah. It's, it happened. That's indisputable. And we should do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, that is a, a great place to, to, uh, to wrap up our conversation about apocalypse 45. And I Seriously, I hope that people will watch it, uh, even though it's a 75-year-old end to a war that uh, may seem like, you know, it might as well have been 200 years ago for people who are young people today who, uh, who do not know much about it. It is well worth watching. I think there's a perspective here as well as real history we're seeing in real time. And the men who fought in that war to hear what their impressions and, and points of view are, are uh, it's a terrific terrific watch. So I encourage people to seek out Apocalypse 45. As I said, you can, uh, it's a, a project that was, as you said, produced through the, through Discovery Production. Well, you can go to the filmschoolradio.com website to find out more about all of this stuff, the information about it. But there's also the website for the film, discovery.com, Apocalypse-45. We'll get you to the information you need. So I appreciate that. Eric Nelson, is there anything else we need to? No, I mean, as I say, this is what one would call an adult portion. And this is, in some ways, the feel-bad movie of 2020, a year that does not need any more, uh, any more bad news.
But on the other hand, it's an unflinching look at a uh, reality that we managed to transcend as a nation. Yeah. And if anything, it should be inspirational and it should remind us what we're capable of doing both good and for bad. Thank you for that. Thank you, Eric Nelson, director of the film Apocalypse 45. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.